Hello and welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I am your host, Ben Kreider, and today I am finally recapping the last three of 17 Thunder players and how they did in the regular season. So I'm going to be talking about the three centers in Moses Brown, Tony Bradley, and Al Horford. So without further ado, I'm just going to hop right into it, starting out with Moses Brown. And Moses Brown is kind of the biggest underdog story that has come out of this roster. You can talk about the Robies, the Kenrich Williamses. You can even go further and further down the line if you'd like to. There's a lot of different players on this team who last year were pretty much unheard of outside of whatever team or college you know they used to go to. But Moses Brown, I think in particular, if there was to be a most improved player award awarded to who actually took the largest jump from like 450th best player to whatever place, Moses Brown takes that easily on the team. I don't know where he'd rank NBA-wise, but um, yeah, I mean, the jump he took this year was bigger than you could have seen from anybody else on the roster because he really was not even an NBA player a year ago. He was on a two-way contract with the Portland Trailblazers. They really didn't play him that much. They had guys above him on the depth chart. I forgot exactly who they were throwing above there, but they had a pretty sticky situation. They had guys like Scalabissier, for example, playing over him. Like, I guess it makes sense to try to get some untapped potential out of him because he was pretty highly touted coming out of college, but uh, I don't know. I mean, they just never really gave Brown or Jalen Horde a shot. I talked about Jalen Horde yesterday, by the way, but he got out of that, and then the Thunder picked him up quickly on a two-way contract, and they got him, and they also got Josh Hall, but really, whenever we were talking draft day, no one was talking about Moses Brown, even entering the preseason, Moses Brown was just a guy that you had on the depth chart, he wasn't going to be cut, but if he was on that full-time roster, he probably would have been, but um, yeah, I mean, he was just kind of an anomaly, you saw him in the UCLA meme with Jalen Hands pushing his, uh, pushing his hands up or his head up, I guess, you know, after like a foul or something. He was just a Twitter meme. And that was about it for the trailblazers. Not a lot of noise came from him. And then for the thunder, I mean, even in the preseason, he had a good start, but it was like garbage time minutes, one game. I think it was against the Chicago bulls. Maybe it was either four for four or six or six of six, but he was just right down below the basket getting easy dunks. And you look at that, yeah, I mean, that's impressive, but I remember at the time, like, he was getting those baskets, and it was like, he's a person to talk about, but you gotta keep in mind, like, they weren't even guarding him, really, so it was pretty much shoot around right under the rim, he's seven foot two. that's not a problem, if you're missing a layup wide open when you're seven foot two, you should not be playing in the NBA, so luckily, he passed that first test, but as the regular season started, he still was somebody who just never touched the court. And when he did, it was for like six to eight minutes when you're down 25 points. Still, you can put up numbers, but you look at those kind of with a different perspective. Like those are sort of what you bunch into empty stats to where you just got bench going up against bench. The outcome's not going to be altered by giving Moses Brown a couple dunks, you know? So nothing too serious was coming his way, and there was not a real reason to put a lot of attention into him until he entered the G League bubble. But that is where he exploded, and it started from day one. Moses Brown was the best center in the G League, probably is not close. You can say Paul Reed's a center. 
I'm going to say he's a power forward for the sake of this, but Moses Brown was far ahead of everybody. I think second place, second best center was Omer Yurtseven, who was his second hand man. He was coming off the bench. But anyways, he goes in there, 7'2", 7'4", wingspan. We know he was athletic, like he was springy, you know, and he was getting rebounds, but the way he was doing it in the G League was ridiculous. He's going in and out, game in, dropping 24 points, 12 rebounds, going 12 of 18 from the field and getting six offensive rebounds every single night. There were some games where he had more offensive rebounds by himself than the other team did in total. And a lot of the games he would get, he'd be getting 24, 26, 28 points. I don't think he ever broke the 30 mark. But a bad game for him would be dropping 18 and 11 in 24 minutes. He didn't play 30 minutes a game. He played half the game. He had it sliced up perfectly between him and Omer Yurt 7. There was really no in-between there on those guys. And Moses Brown was unstoppable. If you were to throw a dude, your typical G League center, whoever he was facing for the most part, would be like 6'8 to 6'10. That was the kind of common range you'd see in the G League. They're not going to be able to bridge a 6-inch, 4-inch gap without double teaming and triple teaming. And to start out the season, that was a mistake these teams were making. They weren't putting two, three guys on Moses Brown. And that's how they got their first win. Then they played the G League Ignite in the second one. They lost the game very close. I think it was overtime, an overtime matchup. But they had to put so much pressure on him. They had guys, veterans like Amir Johnson. When you're looking at some of the rookies that they had, Jonathan Kuminga was kind of splicing in there. Isaiah Todd was also in the mix. There were a lot of different people just focusing in on him. And it took two to three people to slay Moses Brown. And even then, his stat lines were still off the charts. He was getting offensive rebounds. I think his ORP was 15%. So I think that that's like after every shot, there's a 15% chance he's the one getting it. And it's on the offensive side. That is absolutely insane. And in second place was Omer Yurt 7. But obviously, he is on the Miami Heat right now. But he just go up there. And it was as simple as he's just longer, more athletic. If he was boxed out, it did not matter. Unless, luckily, like, if the ball, if let's say he's boxing out on, like, the right side. If the ball somehow bounces to the left, he should be pretty much out of that play. Sometimes he'd still get over to the other side of the court before his other guy, even if boxed out. But for the most part, that was the only way these smaller centers were able to stay alive and get defensive rebounds. If not, if it's just like right off front iron, it bounces pretty high, they don't stand a chance, even if they're three to five feet behind where the the rim is, you know? He'd still be able to jump over you, get the rebound, and he'd just chuck it up and up and up. And he did not have the best touch to start out the year. For the most part, he was kind of shaky. He had a lot of force on his layup. So they'd ricochet off the backboard, hit the rim, and he'd just keep getting it over and over again. He was playing wall ball pretty much the entire time in Orlando, and nobody could stop him because there weren't any seven-footers to get in his path. The only guy who I thought gave him a fair shot, at least defensively, was Nick Richards for the Greensboro Swarm. That's one person out of 15 games. I think he played... 14. So even out of that, one out of 14 games, nobody had the answer to him. And it was strictly just based off of his play style. Nobody in the G League this year, or even in the years prior, really has the same motor as him to where he was never fatigued. If you're a center in the G League, 
and you're seven feet tall, there has to be some sort of reason as to why, you know, you're not playing really high level overseas or you're not in the NBA in general. And typically it comes down to, you know, you're just a traditional center and there are a lot of those, not just in the NBA, but overseas. There are a lot of good centers overseas that could probably plug in now and be decent role players. So, you know, there's no real breakaway there. You need to be able to have a shot. You need to be athletic. For Moses Brown's case, he's extremely athletic. And when you're talking athletic bigs in the G League, you're thinking of a Christian Wood. You're thinking of a Tyler Cook. You're thinking of someone who's 6'8", 6'9", not someone who's over 7 feet, and definitely not someone who's seven foot two. He was one of the tallest guys in the G League. He might as, might as well have been the tallest. I don't know who else would have been taller than him, honestly. So, I mean, that was it for him. It was just simple go through the motions it didn't even seem like he was trying at times like there was no real stoppage to him and there were people throwing two three like I said at him but it did not matter he'd still score baskets at the easiest rate possible the only downside to Moses Brown's game that was put on display in the G League was his weakness is if you get him if he's like right under the rim under the baseline and you double team him he's in trouble because the only option for him is to go for a rip move, and he started to do that at the very tail end of the G League, where there's guys who are trying to rip the ball loose, and as soon as their hand is over his wrist, he just has to fling his arms up, pretend he's shooting, he gets to the line twice, and that's a lot of people just had to hold him when he got offensive rebounds, like because they wanted him to earn it. It was two points automatically, but if they were disciplined and did not do that, Moses Brown would get trapped and he'd make a terrible pass or he'd just step out of bounds. That was the only weak spot. And when you're talking, you need two to three guys to make him not good. That's that's a pretty uh, honorable thing to be mentioning about somebody. So yeah, Moses Brown one-on-one was actually unguardable. He was the Shaquille O'Neal of the G League this year. And I don't have the averages on me right now. I think it was somewhere around like the 18, 19 point mark with 12... 13 rebounds that is by all accounts ridiculous you should not be averaging that and it might be a bit up or down I can search that out um, as I'm talking but I mean yeah those stats are not human for playing in the G League not playing in any sort of basketball league but it was just due to him being able to get those offensive rebounds and then generating those second chances into serious points because he did not pass the ball after he got the rebound like some guys like an Ennis Cantor he doesn't score a lot but he gets a ton of offensive rebounds now he ranks high in second chance points but when he gets a rebound he'll look to kick out to a CJ McCollum a Lillard and Anthony he can go up but for the most part he'll kick out Moses Brown was never ever like that and that's what kind of separates him and if you want to hear the stats here they are 18.5 points and 13.9 rebounds a game. Six of those rebounds came on the offensive side, and he averaged 1.9 blocks. When he was at his best, and the Blue were at their best, in a week two of the G League, Moses Brown was dropping 20 points, 15 rebounds, and five blocks. Like, like it was nothing. I mean, I don't have the averages on that specific week. Just like I said, I, I didn't have the the actual ones overall um, until like a minute ago, but 
it's ridiculous. He was too tall, and the only real way to try to get an advantage was bumping into him and hoping a foul call would sway your way, but he only averaged 2.6 fouls in the time. I think he might have fouled out like once, or he got five fouls, four fouls quickly, and he had to pull him, but that's really no big deal. Just overall, though, the Blues system was so catered towards him because you had him setting screens up top. That is something that was very beneficial towards him. He could run up because he has such long strides. You could throw him oops. He'd be protected just based off of his height advantage, number one. Or you could just dump it down low and he'd toss it in. If you threw an entry pass inside to Moses Brown and there was one man on him, it was two points every time. Doesn't matter if it's from the charity stripe or just him laying it up and in. But he was completely set in those situations. Even when he took it himself, he had a pretty solid post hook that you guys did not see a lot with the Thunder this year. But he gets it, he starts running, and then he'll just fling it up and in. Now, he's not able to do that as much because now there's seven footers. These guys are a lot bulkier, and they can also fly up re or blocks. Not as high as Brown can, but still... They're a lot more athletic than the guys you saw in the G League. And even the best, the O'Shea Brissettes, the Tyler Cooks, they were able to stop Moses Brown, but they needed a lot of extra help to do so. So as I said, one-on-one, -on -one, Moses Brown was unstoppable. If he was given MVP, which I think if the Blue had a better record than 7-9 and nine or 7-8, and eight, I forgot what they ended up with. Uh, yeah, I think it was 7-8. and eight, or No, 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 no. They had... Eight, it was 8-8. Eight and eight. It was 8-8 eight and eight that they had, and they lost like a crazy tiebreaker. But if they made the playoffs, or they, if they were in the top, just like the Delaware Bluecoats were, I could have seen Moses Brown taking home MVP. Those numbers are probably something that you're not going to see in the G League for a very long time again. Unless Taco Fall is playing down there next season. But... Whenever he had those games, you started to hear maybe 10 games through people on broadcast like Nick Gallo, when they have those side segments, started mentioning, here's what happened. Normally, it was a Pokashevsky tracker, maybe Ty Jerome, that was it. They did not care about anybody who was not signed to a two-way contract or a full-scale contract. You can't blame them because why would the normal listener care that Ryan Woolridge dropped 20 points? They probably don't know who Ryan Woolridge is anyways, but yeah, they didn't talk about Moses Brown until a little bit after, but he was making statements, and by the time he came over, there was a little bit of a noise. Not a ton, but people knew about him. I'll put it that way. People knew the accolades he was coming in with. First team, all G League. I think he was on the defensive team as well, but yeah, he went in. And the same kind of contributions went into his play. And this is when Al Horford was pretty much on the edge of being done. Like, I think at the time Moses Brown made his debut, it wasn't a sure thing that Al Horford was going to be rested. But he only had to play like two more weeks of that until the All-Star break hit. Because the regular season for them ended early March, maybe the first week of March. And the trade deadline, or I guess the trade deadline and the, the all-star break might go a little bit hand-in-hand hand anyways. But, I mean, there was only like a 14-day difference. So he goes in, and he did have to earn his stripes a little bit. But whenever Al Horford was pulled for good, 
Moses Brown's stock just shot up like a cannon. And when he went in for the starting unit, there was no stopping this man. Just to start things out though, I want to take it back to whenever Moses Brown originally came back over. And it was a little bit of a gap here. He went from playing last February 1st to March 11th. So he did have a couple of games because yeah, yeah, All-Star Weekend was kind of wedged right in there. It might have been, he might have just showed up right after, but he goes in, plays 19 minutes, 8 and 12 already off the bat that is really good numbers and then he follows it up nine and nine 13 and four 20 16 and five this was his fourth game back where he played 30 minutes against the chicago bulls this was the game where he put himself on the map and he said i need to be starting this is where he earned the gig and there was no turning back from that point i think that 2016 and 5 stat line is something we've only seen from serge Ibaka before and he would have played even better had he not fouled out of that game he had those games where he'd have double double after double double he had a game against boston this year where he had 21 points and 23 rebounds out of those how many were offensive it doesn't show me on the ESPN thing, but I'm going to guess it was probably 9, 10. That's where he got the majority of his rebounds in some of these games. And he still was dropping those 20 and 10 stat lines until the very end of the season. And he put the cherry on top with that 24 and 18 game against the Clippers. Also had a career high seven blocks. Wow. And overall on the season... Moses Brown ended up averaging 8.6 points and 8.9 rebounds. And when you want to, you know, take out those early portions, I'm assuming those numbers probably are closer to double digits. Like he almost averaged a double double anyways. You want to toss out those stinkers from January and December? There might be a real shot that could happen for him, that it, he could be averaging a double double. And I'd believe it. So in those 43 games, he was only playing on average 21 point four minutes dropping that the biggest jaw dropping thing though is the rebounds 8.9 rebounds in that time but off those 3.6 of them came offensively and then on what he did with those he was a top 10 player in second chance points top five not top five he was actually six but he's still pretty damn close he averaged 3.9 points on second chances this year and that, when you look at his overall selection of points in the paint, he averaged 6.8 points in the paint, by the way. That's over 57% of the points coming off of second looks. So it was a deal where when he was facing the Rudy Gobert's and just the bigger centers, he wasn't able to go after those offensive rebounds. And that's where he had those games where he had four, six, or eight points. Didn't ever meet double digits. But when you put him against that typical center that's not extremely strong or extremely intimidating inside, he'll go over you, get the rebounds, and throw it right back in. So for some of these games, he probably had 10, 12, 14 second chance points, you know? So that's just something you got to wrap your head around with him. But that's just how he plays. Finishing-wise, that is his game, and you cannot complain about that. I think the pick-and-roll threat with him, too, is very legitimate. People might want to downplay it, but as a high ball screen setter, he still is dangerous. Now, if you're going to be a defender, you might want to hedge, but the problem is Moses Brown is faster than 
almost any other center I can think of. I don't know someone who has the strides like this man does and the acceleration he does. So you can try to hedge, but going back down on him might be a nightmare. Dropping back into coverage, that could suck for you. So he makes it interesting where he cannot shoot a shot past six feet. If it's not a push shot, it's not going in for him. It's as simple as that. But he's still effective enough based off his speed to where you still might need to step up a little bit to try to help out. And if you switch, it's pretty much over because Moses Brown's going to be on a guard. He's going to have to get double teamed and he'll just kick it out or take it himself. It doesn't matter. There's a lot of options with Moses Brown. So I love him. I think out of the roster right now, this might be one of those guys that I like the most. Maybe it's because I saw from start to finish the G League experience to now, but still, man, I mean, it was a serious kind of debate before Moses Brown came over. It was his play is great right now, but when he plays against serious NBA competition, will he be good will he even be playable and that was 100% yes I thought with him coming over there might be a little bit of a down part where he wasn't able to get into things he kind of just went up in and started dominating he had a low point this year it was really in like the last maybe month of the season not like the last couple games but before that he was averaging games where he's shooting two for eight he was shooting three for eight just bad games, really, where he could not make a wide open layup, but he got around that, and I think that could be something you could still see, but if we get a center and he's not the starter next year, he will be still averaging double doubles playing 20 minutes a game. That's not going to stop, and in a bench roll, he's going to be even more effective because your number one source of defense, at least for the opposition, is going to be taken away. If you're going against some mediocre defenders, He's going to be feasting and dominating on both ends of the floor because he is still very active as a shot blocker. He averaged 1.1 of those a game. So for me, Moses Brown was just an absolute darling for the team. He's only 21 years old. I think by next year, he should be 22. But regardless, he has so much potential. And from him being pretty much unplayable, like I said, to now... It makes you wonder what a year of training will do. He's going to be in Oklahoma City for practicing purposes, and he did not have that luxury last year because he got signed November, played in February, and was just kind of packing around with the team before that. But he's going to have a full six months to train up, or however long it is. I don't even remember at this point, but he's going to have that whole offseason. I think next year he's going to be a lot better and you may wonder where those areas might be. I also think the same. I think it might just be in getting fouls and being able to box out, get positioning for some of those shots. Also, he could definitely bulk up. Says he's 245 pounds. He still looks very lean. Got to make sure he's still agile though. That is the one thing that makes his game so, so effective. But moving on to his bench piece, we got him at the trade deadline, traded away George Hill, got Bradley and two second round picks. And Bradley was just expected to be a filler, but he was actually very good. He's 23 years old, so he could fit this timeline too, but he came in, played 22 games for the Thunder and averaged 8.7 points and 6.1 rebounds. 2.1 of those came offensively. So just like Brown, he was getting offensive boards. Brown did it with his athleticism. 
Tony Bradley just did it with good positioning because he's only six foot ten. You don't have that height advantage. But regardless, I think he's a perfect backup. I don't expect the Thunder to pick him up, honestly. I think that he might be someone who gets bounced around from four or five, maybe even six teams throughout his career. He's already on destination three. I could see him being a really luxurious one or two year pickup, playoff team to playoff team. Everybody could use a guy like Tony Bradley. He's able to get you just traditional screen setting. As a rebounder, he's very solid and he's not going to miss a wide open chip shot. Even when he's working on those screens, though, he was extremely good as kind of the duo to Ty Jerome. When Ty Jerome was being the orchestrator off the bench at point guard, he just had to get Tony Bradley up there for a high ball screen. He rolls in. Ty Jerome's a really good passer in the pick and roll, so he would throw in beautiful passes to Tony Bradley. He would cap him off with a dunk or with a layup. Typically, he'd just have to sprint baseline. Everyone would get, would get tripped up. And then he'd just be hiding in the shadows, reaping the benefits of things. That's all he needs to do, though. He cannot shoot the basketball. That's his one real knock here. But I think overall, he's still pretty solid. He's not very fast at six foot ten, but he's also a center. You don't want to get him on the perimeter. If he's playing perimeter defense, it's going to spell disaster for you. That's the same for Moses Brown and pretty much every center in the league, though. But um, yeah, I think interiorly, He's held, he's held up pretty well. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to him, though. Like I mentioned, I mean, he would be somebody that I think we could keep around. But you also need to keep in mind the picks that we have. And if Evan Mobley's there, Sam Presti might want to take a shot. Personally, I kind of feel a little bit more emotional towards some of the guards that might be in this draft class but I could understand wanting someone like Mobley who does have the potential to be a pick and pop player pretty athletic seems like a good fit with SGA and whoever else might tag along with the roster Tony Bradley he's someone that would just be a complimentary piece to Moses Brown he doesn't bring another aspect in it's pretty much the same type of game, except the way he does it is a little bit different. So it's a seamless fit in between those two, and that can be beneficial, but also you might want to be able to chop it up with someone who can shoot the basketball a little bit. And someone who can is Al Horford. Here's the deal though. He got benched for a reason this year. I don't think he's going to be suiting up in a Thunder jersey again. He's 34 years old. He turns 35 this week as i'm recording this he is turning 35 and as i publish this i actually think he's going to be 35 years old so you're going to be able to get another calendar year on there and as you see that transition his trade value drops down just a little bit over the next two seasons al horford's making on average a little bit over 27 million dollars a year that is terrible that is probably one of the worst contracts you could find in the league luckily for us there are some destinations like the boston celtics maybe brad stevens would like a guy like al horford since ainge is gone but um he could work he's a stretch five that contract though you might be able to have to spew out like a couple of picks to move him and that might be something pressy might be a little bit unhappy to do anyways though in his time playing, he was great. He played 28 games for the team, averaged 14.2 points and 6.7 rebounds. Get this though, averaged 3.4 assists. I didn't really know that he was a passer 
much in his career. I mean, I'm looking at the stats, and I've looked at it before. In his Boston days, he averaged five assists in his first year, and the very next season, he was at 4.7. He averaged four assists, even with the Philadelphia 76ers. He didn't really seem like that type of guy, but hell, he was able to spread the ball around, and he did it for the Oklahoma City Thunder. And all we needed with him was really veteran leadership and decent shooting ability. And with that, the reason we needed that, obviously, you want to be able to have someone in the pick and pop spot, but also the trade value needs to go up. If you don't have that shooting factor to you and you're just a post guy who's good at rebounding, good at defense, is a veteran and is 34, nobody's going to care. But if you say they can shoot a bit, and a lot of these playoff teams need shooting, as we've seen throughout the course of the first round. His value is more important, and he was able to be a very good shooter for the team. He shot 36.8% on 5.4 attempts with the Thunder this year. That's the most he's averaged in his career so far. And I think more importantly, as a catch-and-shoot piece, he shot at 36.6% on 4.7 attempts so pretty much everything came off of catch and shoots but with Al Horford man as I talked about he is just somebody who gave you everything you needed I think rebounding wise he was also solid that was about it though he gave us that suitable role when we had Moses Brown trending upwards we picked up Tony Bradley the writing was kind of already on the wall. He's like 10 years older than both of those guys. So it just would not make sense to play him over developing pieces that both turned out very solid for the Thunder this year. Even Isaiah Roby at the five. I mean, with Horford playing, that was not able to happen much. He Roby only started at center whenever he was taking a rest day. And luckily that happened a lot. But if he stayed throughout the whole 72 games... I don't even think Isaiah Roby would be considered much at all. I don't even know if you'd consider him a premium role player. Just another dude because that potential he showed at the five really made his name for the season, in my opinion. But that sacrifice he made, I think it's mutual. I mean, he got paid $27 million to sit around, be a coach, and talk to the players. For the Thunder, they wanted to develop, and they're probably going to look to move him anyways. I think the only hole in his game that was clearly apparent from day one was just how he defended in the pick and rolls. This guy is getting slower and slower by the day. That's just how it is, unless your name's LeBron James. You're going to be getting slower and slower when you're 34, turning 35 years old. So he had to just stay like stagnant down below in the paint. If there was a high ball screen, he would still stay draped right under the rim expecting a roll. And if you had someone like Nikola Vucevic on the other side, Nikola Vucevic would just shoot wide open threes every play. And I remember this was, I forgot what day, maybe like December 28th, 29th. But on that day, they played Vucevic. Vucevic was just a pick and pop master, flinging up threes, pretty much playing shoot around, and it was infuriating. And then on the flip side, when you played a team like the Utah Jazz, this is the one that the Thunder barely lost, went down to the wire, absolute wire. Rudy Gobert had to set a high ball screen for Donovan Mitchell. Lou Dort, he tried to get over screens. When you're going through 20, 30 Gobert screens in the course of like five minutes, I don't blame you if you can't cover him. So 
he could just step in. Mitchell could step in for easy middies, and that's pretty much what salted that game away, and that is what happened continuously. He didn't step up, and even when these guys rolled to the basket, he would still stay planted kind of in a weird limbo area where he's not close enough to where he's going to actually impact a runner or a floater. He's, he's just not going to be there, and uh, I mean, at, being towards the rim, he's still kind of so far up that if the center sneaks by, he still can't contest either of them. So he was just in a really weird defensive position that whole time, and it got straight up abused during some of those games. And that is where it was hair pulling. That's when you started thinking that Mike Muscala was the answer. You should play Isaiah Roby more. And that is what led to Roby playing more. Mike Muscala always kind of had that role, but yeah, there was a clear difference between a night where you started Isaiah Roby at the five and Al Horford at the five. The differences were much more drastic. With Isaiah Roby, you could play, you could get killed on bully ball. When you have Horford, you don't get killed on bully ball, but you get killed off of using screens. So it was kind of picking the better of the two evils. I guess they decided that was Al Horford, but as soon as he was given the boot, I don't think anybody was particularly complaining about that. So Al Horford, he's going to be a guy that the Thunder will actively look to trade on trade deadline day. I'll talk about his potential destinations probably in the next coming weeks, definitely as we approach the draft, because that will be a storyline and we will have much more information on maybe what directions teams are looking to be going to towards uh, heading forward. But yeah, I don't see him staying beyond this year in the press conference. He said he's going to talk with his representatives, with his team, and come out with a mutual agreement. That also probably just means he's gone. But yeah, I mean, you you can't complain about Al Horford. He gave exactly what was needed of him. And because of his shooting game, we were able to see the potential that Shea Gilgis-Alexander can have as a pick-and-roll player. And really, what kind of potential this team can have if there is a reliable shooter manning the five. And I think that might be the direction the Oklahoma City Thunder might want to go towards. Because Moses Brown is interesting. As I said, his speed can kind of make up for things. But if you put in Steven Adams next to SGA this year, it wouldn't have been pretty. Really, a lot of it had to do with the shooters and Al Horford and Mike Muscala that really just set out what this Thunder team was looking to do throughout the year. And it determined a lot of these kind of stretch lineups that were thrusted out throughout this 72-game season. But guys, that is all my takes. All 17 players drilled them out in the last five days. Pretty ridiculous in in retrospect. I mean, yeah, it's a lot of people to be talking about. And I think I hit pretty much every point that I needed to with them. If you guys have different opinions on anybody, whatever that might be, something I forgot about, make sure to tell me on my Twitter. It's just my name, at Ben Kreider. You guys can DM me. I believe those are open or you can just at me. I will definitely see anything in the mentions, but make sure to stay tuned for other coverage and for other playoff coverage. As I mentioned, I am an affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network, and we have now introduced even more affiliates to keep you updated with playoff play. So if you guys are interested in some of these series, I know I might be a little bit late to the game, but if you guys saw that just amazing comeback from Damian Lillard, one tire to take it to overtime, another one to take it to double overtime. That foul from Austin Rivers was total BS, but that is besides the point. You guys can listen to the busted 
Buckets podcast. That is the Trailblazers one. And as I have mentioned, the Chicken and Nuggets podcast is for the Denver Nuggets. So those are just two of the many this network has to offer. I'll be talking to some of those affiliates in the near future about the draft. So if you have any questions on that, you can also direct that towards my Twitter account. But guys, that does it for me in today's episode talking about everybody. Stay tuned for my next little series I plan on doing for you all. But other than that, though, guys, that is going to wrap up today's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.